So last week, we did an introduction to Chassidus and Tanya, um, and a summary of the first 17 chapters of Tanya. And the first 17 chapters of Tanya, one of the um, guiding or, or fundamental building blocks is that because a Jew has a godly soul, they are in principle capable of both grasping God's greatness in an authentic manner and being moved by that emotionally towards feelings of love and fear of God, which is then utilized and discussed in, in, in how one is supposed to serve God and the, the necessity and limits of that, etc., etc. Um, in chapter 18... The Alter Rebbe observes that when the verse says that, that this emotional aspect of Judaism, levavcha, in your heart, is karev, is within your, is within your reach, it's within your abilities, something under your control, that it says karev ma'oid, it is very much in your control. And from this he concludes that the previous explanation that by having a godly soul we are capable of grasping God's greatness cannot be the soul approach because not everyone has... Um, a sufficiently um, broad enough mind to actually gar- grasp God's greatness. Um, and so, in, beginning in chapter 18, he introduces a new path, a new approach, which is Hasidus, and that it's deriving and basing itself on this idea of the godly soul, to serve God not just with the doing of mitzvahs, but with feelings of love and fear of Hashem, um, as the verse says is possible. Okay. And this is when he introduces what is known as the Ava Mesoteris, the hidden love or the natural love that every Jew has by virtue of their soul. So chapters 18 and 19 um, are an exposition about this love and, and really <coughs> describing it and trying to come to understand the love itself. Um, and what the Alter Rebbe takes away is that this love is different than the standard love that the soul would experience in four ways. So I'm going to run through those very briefly. Um, The first is that, and this is not in any particular order, but I'm going to do it. The first is that this love is inherited. In other words, generally speaking, love is something that you have to come to. If you love someone, your children are not born loving them. They do not inherit the love that you feel towards someone else. So this love is inherited, and that's because due to the service of the patriarchs, every Jew inherits a divine soul, a godly soul, with this quality that he labels Chachma, which is really a, 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 a duplication or a spark of the sphere of Chachma. So every Jew inherits a little piece, if you will, of the sphere of Chachma. Um, and then that leads to the second difference, which is that this love is rooted in the Chachma as opposed to normally love is rooted in the trait of Bina. Bina is associated with comprehension, with grasping, with making sense of things. So to the degree to which you fathom God's greatness, that determines the degree and the type of feelings that you would have towards him. Whereas Chachma is not that at all. Chachma um, for our purposes, this is a summary, is a receptivity to God's, God's truth in and of itself. In other words, 
much the same way that when you open your eyes, you just see what's in front of you. Chachma just senses the truth of God. And this is where the innate belief in Hashem comes from, um, the willingness of a Jew to give up their life in martyrdom. All comes because the truth of God shines into the soul because they've inherited this quality. There's nothing to do with the divine service of the Jew themselves. And the third difference is that normally love is about um, achieving some kind of closeness. So when you love someone, there is a desire to be with them. Um, if we were to use the Hebrew word, we'd say dveikos, attachment. Whereas the, this love is not really that the soul desires to be close to God or attached to God or have a relationship with God. It's that the soul desires to um, be completely subsumed within the truth of God. Now, that would result in the soul no longer existing. In other words, it's not so much that the soul seeks to annihilate itself, but the soul so strongly identifies with the truth of God that radiates in, within it that any notion of anything other than God, including its own existence, including its own desire, is something that the soul yearns to um, escape so that it can fully merge with God. And so there's an, entire, there's an entire loss of self for the godly soul. Whereas the normal love the godly soul has is a, is a love of wanting to be with God, to, um, to have a connection with God, to experience God, to be close to God, but doesn't necessarily involve an, a, the loss of the soul's very existence. Um, and the truth is that most people do not experience this love. It is a latent part of the psyche of a Jew from the soul. And the only time we generally actually experience this love is in the way it contains fear, which is the fourth difference. Normally when you love, um, love is an independent emotion from fear. So if I, if I love money, it doesn't necessarily mean I'm afraid of losing money. Like on an emotional level, the desire for money may make a person do reckless things. The fear of money makes a person very cautious, right? You could have one emotion without the other. Even though logically, you know, if you value money, you value money. Um, but certain things go to the core of your being. So for instance, in a human being, love of life and fear of death really are the same thing. Um, it's just you experience them very differently. So if your life is in danger, you experience it as fear of death. If you recover um, or your life is saved, the joy and positivity you experience is the, is the love of life. But it's really just two sides of the same coin. And those have to do with things that are fundamental to the person. And so for the godly soul, if it's fundamental to be totally subsumed within the oneness of God, it's also fundamental for the soul that any, any denial of God for the soul is, is basic death. It's, 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 and so it fears a denial of God like it fears death. And that's where mar Jewish martyrdom comes from. That when a Jew experiences martyrdom, what's happening is that the soul is unwilling and unable to die. And the result of that is that the body has to die. Because the death of the body, um, the body's will to live is, 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 has no match for the soul's will to live. And since the soul experiences encountering something which denies God as literal death, because it identifies so strongly with God, so it experiences the love of God not as a desire for God, but as a fear, a, 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 literally a, kind of a petrification. Um, and that's the experience of martyrdom or Messiris Nefesh. 
And the idea is that that is a latent part of every Jew. You don't have to do anything to achieve that. You inherit that. Um, and then as we move through the chapters, the author was going to talk about how that can be utilized in a day-to-day integrated way to serve God with feelings of love and fear. Yeah. We're not going to talk about it, A, because this is Tanya, and Tanya deals specifically only with Jews, so you could ask me question and answers, and B, because it's a summary so I don't want a, of a review, so I don't want to go into any details. But you can save for questions and answers, and I don't mind talking about it then. Okay, so that takes us to chapter 20. And in chapter 20, the Alter Rebbe wants to establish that really every single positive mitzvah is substantively the same, and every single negative mitzvah is substantively the same. In other words, that from the perspective of the soul, denying God, which is idolatry, idolatry is a denial of God, or specifically a denial of his unity, um, is death, and that's where martyrdom comes from. Well, if every um, negative commandment is really substantively idolatry, and every positive commandment is really affirming God's unity, then the attitude that the soul has to um, giving up one's life so as not to worship idols or commit a heresy, that would be applicable to every aspect of Judaism, every aspect of our observance, whether it be a biblical commandment or a rabbinic commandment, doesn't matter, because every positive halachic injunction is in effect an affirmation of God's unity, and every negative transgression is in fact essentially the same thing as worshiping idols. And what the Alter Rebbe wants to, come, to conclude is that this is not just rhetoric or a figure of speech. This is, this is actually the case. Um, this idea is a little bit hard to appreciate. Um, when I originally taught it, I spent some time on it. Because it's a review, I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but I do feel it's important to spend some time on it. Okay. So there are many actions that we take where we have to differentiate between the physical action and what we are doing, okay? For instance, if I squeeze a small piece of metal, right, um, that action could be understood in many different ways depending on what that metal is attached to, right? If it's the trigger of a gun, right, we view that very differently um, than if it's um, letting more lead out of a mechanical pencil, right? Even though the act of just doing this is more or less physically the same thing. That's because of physically, it, 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 it's taking place in a different context. But you can abstract that and think about, okay, well, it's not just there are things that are physically different. For instance, if you sign your name, right? What are you doing when you sign your name? Well, you know, when you sign your name on a legal document, what are you doing? When you sign your name when you're doodling in class, is that the same thing? It's art, right? It's two totally different things, right? So physically, it's the same thing. Like, no, no, it's not the same thing, right? So what the altruist point is that when I shake a lulav, when I put on tefillin, when you light Shabbos candles, when you lunch in the mikvah, um, that doesn't look like the same thing as affirming the theological truth of God's unity. And um, if you... Um, cook on Shabbos or um, speak during, during uh, parts of davening where you're not allowed to talk, right? That doesn't look like the same thing as going into a Catholic church and like taking communion. But he's saying it's, it's, you are actually doing substantively the same thing. Every positive mitzvah, what you are actually doing is 
the same thing as what the mind does when you truly fathom God's unity. You're bringing God's unity into the world. And every time you do a sin, you do a transgression, you are in fact doing the same thing as worshiping idols. Now, in order to get to that, we have to understand what God's unity is. Because if every mitzvah is an affirmation of God's unity, and every sin is a denial of God's unity, we have to have a full understanding of God's unity. Um, and that's the topic that we are in, um, chapter, the rest of chapters 20, 21, and 22, which is a full understanding of God's unity. So, the, the, the idea of God's unity in chapter 20 that he introduces is the idea that God remains unchanged in the creation of the world. Why is that unity? Because we are focusing on this quality of the aloneness of his being. God is alone. Prior to anything being created, God is alone. And once God creates things, he is still alone. And the idea is that he's still alone to the exact same degree. And in chapter 20, he explains this with the, with the idea that in order for something to compromise your status as being alone, it has to have some significance vis-a-vis you. So if you, if you were to think of the idea of Adam, Adam the first man, it says he was alone. And obviously there were the animals and there was the trees and there was everything else. Right? But he was alone because there was nothing that rose to the level, significance of being a human being alongside him. So he was alone in one sense, but not alone in other senses. Um, and the Altarebbe's point in Tanya is that it, God was alone in an absolute sense because nothing is of any significance to God. And if nothing is of any significance to God, the introduction of anything does not detract from his aloneness and the removal of anything does not increase his aloneness. And in order to have a better grasp on this idea that nothing has any significance to God, um, he describes how God creates the world um, through speech. So the idea is that the creation of the world comes from God's speech. And the question is, well, since the creation of the world comes from the speech, the world is, can be no more significant than God's speech. And so the question is, what significance does God's speech have to God? And he goes through a series of explanations as to how God's speech is insignificant, um, drawing a parallel on human speech. So number one, um, any spoken word is insignificant compared to your capacity to speak, which is inexhaustible. Number two, the spoken word is insignificant compared to your thoughts because spoken word is simply a duplication of the thought and derives its meaning from thought. So it's redundant vis-a-vis thought. And finally, it's insignificant to the raw human experiences of desire and awareness, which generate the thoughts, which become the basis of speech because desire and awareness are not actually in language, right? The awareness of what cake is and how it's tasty and the desire to eat it um, doesn't have any consonants or vowels to it. And so it's insignificant both in terms of it, 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 it in three senses. Number one, it takes up no effort. Number two, it's redundant. And number three, it's irrelevant. And if God's word is insignificant because it takes no effort on God's part, it is redundant. The spoken word of God is, is just is redundant given a higher level of God, godly revelation called God's thought. And even the thought is irrelevant because it takes a form which doesn't truly manifest God. The same way our language doesn't truly express our human experiences, it's irrelevant. 
So then the created world from the speech is fundamentally irrelevant and insignificant and, and has no, um, is of no consequence to God. And therefore, whether it exists or not, doesn't change his aloneness. And that's the end of chapter 20. In 21, he addresses the fact that speech is not really an applicable term when we talk about God. For God, there can't really be speech. And this part is going to be important because this is going to also be a similar thing that we're going to get in chapter 22. What is speech fundamentally? It is projecting language outside of yourself. Right? So you only speak in as much as that there's something beyond yourself, someone beyond yourself to hear you. So if there is no notion of beyond God, there's no notion of outside of God, then there's no notion of him speaking. Right? Even if God creates words and utters words and uses words, whatever that would mean, they never leave God. So how can we say that there is speech? Um, and why is this point relevant? So the reason why it's relevant is because although my spoken word might be insignificant to me, that's only when we're looking at it internally. Spoken word to capacity to speak, the spoken word compared to thought, the spoken word compared to the raw human experiences. But if you compare this, if you think about the spoken word and the social dynamic of speaker and listener, right? There's someone who has something to communicate and someone who doesn't know it yet. Well, the spoken word is obviously significant in that sense. So once we go outside of ourselves, our spoken word takes on significance. So seemingly, if God creates the world through speech, the world is significant in as much as the world, the world is created by a spoken word that goes beyond God. But if there's no outside of God, there's no other perspective for the words to gain significance. And so really, God's, the only way to think about the words is vis-a-vis God, and vis-a-vis God, they're not significant. So the, the world is insignificant. So then we say, well, what sense are they speech? And the sense in which their speech is just like speech reveals to others, so too God's words reveal to others. So this gets a little bit difficult to understand because we're differentiating between there's nothing outside of God versus that there are others. Um, in other words, when I speak to you, there are two things which are true. A, you are beyond me. You are outside of me. Your minds, your reality, your lives do not exist within my own consciousness. Also, you come to know things because I speak. So when I'm speaking, I'm both encountering the end of my own awareness and I'm also encountering the beginning of your awareness. But for God, those two things aren't linked up. For God, there never has to go, it never goes outside of God. The question is just whether is there, is there creating any other awareness. So if God were to only think, the world would be real only to one subjective being, namely God. If God were to speak the world into being, the world exists not just to God, it also exists to others. But where do those others exist? Within him. And so if their perspective on reality is different than his, then they're wrong, okay? In other words, if I were to describe something as different than you in my subjective experience, um, I do not have to be wrong in order for you to be right because I'm talking about how I experience it, you're talking about how you experience it, right? But if we embed, um, if we think about within one person, if I tell you that I'm not angry about something, when really I am angry, 
that I'm wrong, right? And this happens. People may not be aware of their actual subjective experience. We call this like denial, right? So if God creates beings within himself who have a different experience of, 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 of reality of God's spoken word than God does, well, then his experience is right and their experience is wrong. Now, why is their experience wrong? Well, you can't really blame them because they're being created by God's word. So who is the one that is responsible for the fact that we experience God's word as significant when really it's not? God's word, right? So God's word is both doing two things. It's both creating us and revealing some sort of divine power to us that creates us and makes us what we are. And at the same time, it's also misleading us to think that this creative act is significant when in fact it is not. So we are misled in our creation to think that our creation is of significance. And thus we think that God is really speaking, that there's something, so to speak, leaving him and entering our reality. And therefore he's engaged with us and communicating with us when in fact, that's not really the case. And that's where we end off on chapter 21. So if we end off on chapter 21, we have as follows. Before God creates the world, what is there? There's God. And there's the words of God, right? But the words of God are not really having an effect on any kind of being other than God, right? So the only, right, think about like thought, right? In thought, you have your language, right? It's in your head. The only one that's aware of it is yourself. Moreover, when you are thinking, are you paying attention to the language or the experiences that the language is supposed to convey and represent? Are you thinking about the word hunger or about the experience of being hungry? Okay, so God's words are not really, the, 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 the words are not what's important. What's, what's important is the sense of God's being that they convey. Now, if those words are then changed in some way so that now they can be experienced by others, but those others are being created within God, is that really a change for God? And you have to keep in mind that what is, what, what is one thing that's fundamental about God is that he's alone, right? So what's, what's being conveyed by these words? That he's alone. So what would these other beings now be aware of? His his aloneness, right? So hearing God's words accurately would be your own non-existence. But the words don't convey that. They they get somehow, they're misleading. And so this is, for instance, like I can say one thing and I mean one thing, but I say it in such a way where I know you're going to hear it differently, right? That's a way to mislead, right? But I'm not being fooled by my words, Right? This is like a, like a day of a trick question, right? Yeah. Okay. So, in a certain sense, God's words are tricking the creations into thinking that they exist when the real truth that these words are conveying is that only God, God is alone, there's nothing else. And, okay, I'm going to stop using more words at this point for the simple reason that this stuff is very, very hard and you really have to think about it and it's not about getting the correct verbal formulation. What's important is at this point, what we have concluded is that God remains absolutely alone once the world is created the same way it was before the world was created. But the cost that we pay is what? Right, that we're all living in some kind of delusion. Now, why is this a problem? Maybe we're living in a delusion. Like, okay, fine, we're living in a delusion. Because that's reality. 
what's the point of us doing things, right? If we stop here, this completely undermines Judaism, right? The idea that it is of somehow kind of, some, there's some reality to us doing mitzvahs versus sinning, right? Now, if, if, if that's only real in our deluded state, then it's not real at all. Um, so I want to spend some time on this point and then we can start chapter 22. Sometimes children care about things that are really just not that, they're not important. Like a child might start crying because they don't have the blue car. And you say, but there's the red car. I'm like, but I, don't, I want the blue car. And now they're crying and they're inconsolable. Yeah, they, that, that makes sense? That could happen? Mm-hmm. Okay. As an adult, as their parent, should you... How should you react to that? The child is crying inconsolably that they don't have the blue car, they only have the red car. That they feel sad. What? Acknowledge that they feel sad. Oh, so it isn't, was it, so it is important? To them, yeah. To them? No, it's not. It's not. It's not important to them. Yeah. No, it's not. No, it's not. What mistake are you making? That they have an idea of what's important. Right. You, you, well, the mistake that you're making is you're conflating how you experience something versus what is true. Was the child crying? Before? They're trying because they don't have the blue car and they want the re- they have the red car. You're reinforcing the act of crying. Well, you're you're also reinforcing a falsehood. It really isn't important, right? Your job as as an adult in their life and as a parent is to get them to realize that what color toy car you have is not actually important. It's not important to adults, and it really is not important to children. Does the child feel like it's important? Yeah. Mm, yes. They feel like it's important. Right? I can also feel like I'm going to become wealthy by buying lottery tickets. It doesn't make it true, right? <laughs> I can feel like my life is over because I didn't get invited to this party. It's not true, right? Mm-hmm. I can feel like I'm becoming a better human being by ignoring my wife and children and spending time with random strangers and helping them out. It doesn't make it true, right? I can feel like not having the ice cream I want is a tragedy. It doesn't make it. And children, not uniquely so, but very extremely so, are really bad at determining, at at sensing the way reality actually is, especially the deeper things. Children do not have a sense of what's really important. And therefore, they cry about things which are not important. So what is our job to get them to realize it's not important? Now, there's a pragmatic issue, right? Which is if the three-year-old is screaming and crying that, the, that, the, that they didn't have the toy they want, right? And you sitting them and giving them a philosophical lecture about what real value in human life comes from is not an effective way to do that, right? But that's not, right? But, but, but the point is not to like, you go down and you cry also because of the toy car because like, <laughs> it's not something that's worth crying over. Okay, so then you have to figure out some way of getting them out of that and that might involve many, many complicated steps. For instance, if they feel rejected by you, they may not be receptive to what you want to share with them. So you may need to show some kind of care and concern for the pain that they're experiencing without actually legitimizing that it's really an appropriate thing to feel sad about. This is not easy stuff, okay? But at the end of the day, the entire process here is to get the person, get the child to eventually realize that 
you really shouldn't throw a temper tantrum over which car you, which color car you have. By the way, this is not just true when it's a toy car. It's also true when it's a real car, right? You, you wanted a blue car and they didn't have any blue cars and you got a green car. And now you're upset. You're having a miserable day. Well, some, somebody failed you in life. First your parents probably and then yourself and maybe some teachers along the way. Because like, that's not something worth crying over. It's not something to be upset over. What are also things not worth being upset about? Things you can't control. The rain. No, no. I, I would disagree. There are things that you should be upset about that you can't control. Now, the question is how you deal with that. Because if certain things don't bother you, it means that you're, you're indifferent to them. It doesn't matter. If, God forbid, someone's child is dying, should, they, should, they, should that bother them? Yes. It should bother them, but they shouldn't. There's a question now, how do you deal with that, right? But there's a difference thing. You don't say, like, well, well get, get over it. It's like, yeah. no, no, no. It's not something to get over. It's something to deal with in the right way. But it's not getting over it, right? So later on in Tanya, in chapter, in chapter 26, he talks about how to maintain joy at all times. Um, and he says, and even if really bad stuff happens to you, um, and he gives this whole interesting explanation I'm not going to go into. Um, but one thing that's very interesting is that a lot of the reasons why people are sad, the explanation that he gives wouldn't be applicable. Because the explanation he gives later on Tanya has to do with things that really you should be sad about, you should be worried about, you should be distraught about. These are important things that should cause you to have negative feelings when they don't work out. And yet, there's some way to also be joyous. But what about if you're upset about something that's just not that important? What would the alternative solution to be? Get yeah, it's not that important. In fact, the Rebbe Rashab, the fifth Chabad's Rebbe, younger brother, once asked him by Fabring, what do you do when you're really bothered by things which are childish? And he said, well, you should realize that they're childish. <laughs> now, ha, that's a process, right? You, that you, if, you, if, you're, if, you're, if you're too aggressive with yourself, then you're going to be defensive. You're not going to do it, okay? Just like the child, or you can't go and like berate them into it. But why am I bringing this up? Even if God is on a totally higher level than us, if in our world things are important and in God's reality they're not important and then God is like playing along with us, he's doing a disservice the same way a parent is doing a disservice when they play along with a child who's upset about something that's not worth being upset about. That makes sense? Words, it, it, what are you doing? You're saying like, you know, I really, you know, it's fine. You can live in your fantasy world. You can live in your, you can live in your reality of, 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 of non-reality and I don't really care and in fact, I'm just going to reinforce that for you. Does that... Now, the whole point of caring about someone, of connecting to someone, right, is to create... I mean, one of the points is to create a kind of joint reality and that, you know, if one is on a higher level, one is more in touch with the truth, such as a teacher and a student, a parent and a child, then what are they supposed to do? Find ways to bring the one who's less in touch with the truth to share that truth with them, right? That makes sense? So... If God was like, okay, this is the truth, but you can't handle the truth, so I'm going to create this like fantasy world, and in this fantasy world, I'm going to like be this God who supposedly cares about which food you eat and punish you if you eat the wrong foods or marry the wrong people. But really, in the end, it doesn't really matter, but I'm just placating you because you finite people can't handle the truth. Right? Is that what we're supposed to believe? Because that's the conclusion that comes after chapter 21, right? If this whole reality is fundamentally insignificant, it, right, because it doesn't really exist outside of God, and to God there is nothing else other than him, and all of his words are truly conveying is nothing other than him, then, then the whole thing's a joke. Now, there were Jewish theologians who will remain nameless who did think this, and therefore they 
concluded that one should not actually think about these ideas because if you think about these ideas, what's going to happen? It's going to make you more religious or less religious? Less religious. But that's not Hasidus. Hasidus is saying, no, no, engaging with these, these, these ideas and knowing this truth is supposed to make you more committed, more engaged with halachic observance. So we have a serious problem. We can't conclude that the, the truth of the matter is the words, that which, words which create a reality are actually conveying a truth that nothing other than God is important. And the fact that we perceive it differently is because we're being somehow misled. So what are we to do? And that's what chapter 22 is about. Okay, now, before we start chapter 22, um, I wanna, some of you were here previously, so this might be review for you, and some of you were not, so this might be new for you, and even if it's review, it's a good thing to talk about. We're gonna play a game, okay? And the game is, you're, I'm gonna say something, and you're gonna label it as true or false. Good? Okay. This is Tanya class. True. Good. Okay. Um, this is a cup of beer. False. False. Okay. Good. Yeah. Um, chocolate is made from plant products. True. True. Yeah. Okay. It's not. It's not so hard, right? Okay. Nothing tastes better than chocolate. False. Right, you can't make that, you can't, you can't label that true or false, can you? Why not? Because, because that statement only has meaning in reference to someone's experience. Right? So I can say nothing tastes better, nothing tastes better to me or to you or to God than chocolate, right? And that, then we can label it true or false, right? Without adding that reference point. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so, there is going to be three reference points in this discussion. There's God's point of view. There's the creation's point of view. What's the third point of view? God's no, the God's word. Right. So there is... There is the way God, what, if we were to speak about things, right, and I'm going to ask you whether it's true or false, you actually should not say true or false without first ascertaining whose view, who's view, right? So I'm going to say like this, yeah? I exist outside of God. Well, in my sense of reality, is that true or is that false? In sense? Yeah, true. that's true. Okay. Can anyone give me evidence of this? Because you don't feel like you're in God. You're God. But I want to, I want, here's the thing. I don't want to rely entirely on just my own subjective experience. I know this is weird because we're saying in reference to myself. Going back to the fact that even something may be true, true to you, but you may not be fully in touch with it. Like you have free choice kind of thing? Something simpler. Is there evil in the world? Yeah. As far as I know? Yeah. yeah, and in fact, let's go, the, let's go one step further. If I deny that there's evil in the world, I'm wrong, right? There is evil in the world. Okay, so if there's evil in the world, is there any evil within God? No. Mm. So if I'm in a world where there's evil, so much so that if I deny that there's evil, I'm actually incorrect in my assessment of my own reality, 
and there's no evil within God, then my reality is where vis-a-vis God? External to God, right? Okay. Now let's flip this around. Me and my reality is external to God, but from God's point of view. It's false, right? right? Okay, so then what does that mean, though, about my reality? Does it have any evil in it? No. no. See, that works? Yeah. If my reality is entirely subsumed within God, then there's no reality, as far as God's concerned, then there is no evil. Okay? So now here's the question. What about God's word? If God's word is, entire, is creating the world entirely within God, that's then what's going to be the truth of the world that it creates? Is it going to have evil in it? No. No. That makes sense, right? If God's, if, if, God, if, if God's word is creating a world and from the perspective of the word, it's all happening within God and there's no, there's no possibility of evil within God, then the world that it creates has no evil. But if God's word is creating a world outside of God, could it create a world with evil? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, now here's the thing. If my sense as a human being of reality is not in accordance with the word of God, then I'm wrong because the word of God is what creates my reality, right? So, is there evil in the world? No. No? Uh, From our perspective, yes. Okay. Are we delusional about that? That there's evil in the world? No. No. Which means if there's evil in the world and we're not delusional about it, it means that to the word of God, there also has to be evil in the world because that's what's creating the reality. So then that means that the word of God is where? External External to God. And that's what we're going to, in other words, this notion that you have to kind of keep track of what point of view you're talking about, but we're not talking about just pure subjective experience. So it's subjective, but not necessarily purely experiential. Okay, so I want to just go back, right? I could live my life in total denial that there's any evil in the world, right? But then as far as the Torah is concerned, I'm just wrong. There, there is evil in the world. But if I'm wrong, that must mean that it's not just that vis-a-vis me there's evil in the world and I'm just not ex- in touch with reality properly. It also must mean that what creates my reality, what generates reality, what dictates my reality also legit, you know, also says that there is evil. Otherwise, the evil has no, isn't part of the reality. So that means not only vis-a-vis human beings is there evil in the world, there's also for the word of God there's evil in the world. So now I have to differentiate between the word of God's point of view on the matter Versus God's point of view. To God, is there anything outside of God? Okay. To the word of God, is there anything outside of God? That's what we're going to learn is that yes. Okay. So in chapter 21, we learn that God doesn't really speak because there's nothing outside of God. Right? That's our chapter 21. Yet, since the Torah employs human language... The word of the omnipresent blessed he is actual speech, like the speech of a human being. For in truth, it is so by virtue of the descent and flow of the life force to the lower planes by means of many powerful contractions of various kinds in order that the many, many diverse creatures may be created from them. 
So he goes off and starts right away to say that God's word, God's speech is in fact just like our speech. What does our speech do? It leaves us and enters another plane of reality and exits the speaker and enters the reality of the listener. Right? Emphasis on the exiting. What is God's speech doing? It is descending from one plane of reality to another plane. And there's contractions so that it can create different kinds of beings. Let's go back to what I was saying previously. If God's speech is entirely within God and God is absolutely alone, what's the only thing that God's speech could reveal? What? What would, it, what, is, what would his thoughts be revealing? What do your thoughts reveal? No, that's redundant. Your True. thoughts are revealing what? True. Your thoughts are revealing things about your, your, about your experience of reality, right? Well, if God is truly alone, what's the only thing that his thoughts could be revealing? His aloneness. That the only thing that his speech could reveal is his aloneness. So what kind of creations would it create? Just a kind of an awareness that there's nothing other than God, and that's kind of hard to fathom. So there wouldn't be a sense of, of otherness. There wouldn't be a sense of independence. There wouldn't be a sense of, there wouldn't be any evil, right? And yet, God's speech, we're saying, does actually create those things because it does, in some sense, leave God. Now, how can it be leaving God if there's nothing outside of God? You see the problem? Let's look at the um, text. Can anyone find in the in the, that paragraph that I read? In what sense can the speech leave God if there's nothing outside of God? What? God. I'm asking you. God. There is no such thing as outside of God. And yet God's speech is leaving God. Perspective of the listener? No, because then... then, then from, okay, but how does that work? The contractions. The contractions. Okay, which is a word that I hate because it doesn't really mean anything. And it's conf- yeah. The Hebrew word is, 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 is simtum, um, which does... You know, literally translated as contraction, but it, 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 it's, it's used in a variety of different ways in Kabbalah and Hasidus, so it, it's, it can be very misleading. Okay. Let's explain. If If you are in a particular place, how do you know that you're there? I want you to think about that. How do you know where you actually are? Well, your surroundings. Your surroundings, right? right? You have to have some sort, you have to be in touch with your surroundings to know where you are, right? And, and where you are affects your state. So for instance, there are things that you would never do in the street that you may in fact do in your bedroom, right? There are things that you would um, expect in a kitchen that you would never expect if you were in a desert, right? 
So you have this kind of sense of where you are, but that sense of where you are comes from not an internal sense, it comes from experiencing something. You have to be in touch and contact with your environment, right? Okay. What if you weren't in contact with your environment? Then would you know where you were? They're still in contact with the environment. They're just contact. Oh, wait, so you said contact yeah. What? 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 Can anyone think of an example of where a person is not really in contact? They're 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 they're, 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 they're not asleep, so they can do stuff, but they're, they're not. I mean, I think you pretty much know a lot about your environment at that point. You're in a state of being kidnapped. You're right. You're in some right. What? I know, but I want a place where you're functional. No, but not. Possibly you're mentally not there. Possibly your environment. When you're sleeping? No, I want you when you can do stuff, but you're not really. Is there not a time? You're what? Not aware. Is there not a time? Yeah, let's about dementia. Sleepwalking. Dementia. Sleepwalking. Right? Schizophrenia. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Now these are all. These are all what? These are all reasons you're not in contact with with your environment because something's broken inside you, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Yes. Could we flip it around? Could could the environment misrepresent itself to you? Like for instance, let's let for instance let's say we took somebody when they were asleep, right? Um, and we put them into a recreation of their bedroom, but it wasn't really their bedroom. It was actually some place where people can observe them, and they woke up there. Right, they're they're not they're not. There's nothing dysfunctional in them, right? But but, right? But the way their environment is portraying itself to them gives them the impression that their environment is a private place, when in fact the environment is a public place. Right? Does that make sense? Okay. Now let's go to now let's go let, let's go to like uh, let, let's go to a, a less crazy example, but it illustrates the, the same point. Okay. Um, I'm sure people are aware that there's a um, this idea of a one-way mirror, mm-hmm. right? And that like somebody's getting like interrogated in the interrogation room. And there's a one-way mirror. Yeah. Okay, why do they have one-way mirrors? So, so that you're not gonna know that someone's watching. Really, we all know there's one-way mirrors. <laughs> no, you can see them, but they can't see you. What? What? You can see them, and they can't see you. Like you can't you don't... fool yourself when you're looking at you. No, no, there's a one-way... You're in a room, there's a one-way mirror, right? But so there's people can watch what's happening, but you can't see them. But, what's the point of that? But you can see yourself. Because you're the one being interrogated, so like... Yeah, but you know that there's people on the other side, right? Well, like, what's so the big deal? Because Only it's frustrating. What? That's the whole point. It makes them, like, belittled in a way. It, like, creates a hierarchy of who's watching who. It's frustrating. Okay. Hashem's watching you. No, 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 no. So th- that, that may be, in fact, I was actually using it for a slightly different thing. A lot of how we experience our environment is not conscious and not rational. If you can't see somebody watching you, you don't feel like you're being watched. And if you don't feel like you're being watched, you will act more freely. If you are sitting there being interrogated by somebody with three people in the room watching you, are you going to speak as freely than if you're speaking to one person? No. 
especially if that person is enga- is engaged is a good interrogator knows how to like turn casual conversation into information. Okay, but if you have a panel of three or four people watching you, you're all of a sudden be much more reserved, right? Mm-hmm. Now you can try to intellectually remind yourself that's what's happening, but that's not actually how you experience, right? Have you ever wondered why when they like, do um, um, reality TV type of things, why people act the way they do? I mean, don't they know they're on camera? <laughs> the crazier you act, the more you're like, hidden. They're not no, they don't actually have to be hidden. That's, that's the crazy thing. Actually, we just talked this morning about um, some research people did on couples where they put a camera in the kitchen. And after like an hour, the couple forgot the camera. That's right. And then they... Themselves, that's right. That's how that works. In other words, because you're you're not direct, you're not experiencing the observation. You don't feel fundamentally you're being observed. So again, you can kick in your rational mind to try and remind yourself, but that's like a conscious reminding of yourself. So you're so you can do things, and the, the environment can be set up in such a way that it presents itself in a misleading way. You are being observed, but the environment is presenting itself as if you're not being observed, right? And again, the funny thing is, like, because observed means actual living beings, even a camera. After a certain point, you, it doesn't. It's not effective, and you actually don't feel like you're being observed. It is. It does actually. Only if only if it's con- like if you're in a constant state of the camera. But right, I'm saying once the right, what, 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 because. Right. No. No. Because. Because. But you. But you don't. But you don't. Right. You. 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 By the way. I mean, but when other people are in the room, you always still feel like there's other people in the room. That you don't like start to forget because that's something you actually experience. So forget the world for a second. There's God and his word, yeah? What if God were to present himself to his words in such a way like he wasn't there anymore? Then what would the words start to feel like? Separated. They feel like they left him. But have they really gone anywhere? No. So what's happening is a kind of concealment of God from his word. And in as much as God is concealing himself from the word, the word now has a sense of itself being outside of God. And so now it's going to function differently than as if it was functioning within, within God. But is there reminders that they're, getting, they're still part of God? We're not, we're, not, we're not there yet. We're not there yet. We're not there yet. This is going to get... Okay. So, what the thing here... To, right, the thing here is who's being... Right, this idea of the powerful contractions right, is, really, is really the idea of God concealing himself from his own word. Okay. So now, but... Has God actually gone anywhere? No. So, as far as God is concerned, is his, his word is still where? Within him. And so the word can't really create anything? Outside, outside of him. Right, outside of him, other than him, that's, that's, that's contradictory to him, etc., right? But in as much as the, but from the perspective of the word, right, the word has the sense that it is outside of God, right? Because God has concealed himself from the word. So now the word of God could create something, Outside of God. Okay? So which one is right? I want to, I want to stop here. Which one is correct? Which, which of these is correct? God. God's point of view? 
or God's the word God's words point of view. Both the way to say God's either or. Okay, so what we're gonna do is we're gonna do a little physical experiment. Okay. Okay. So has everyone ever had the experience of their hand or foot falling asleep? Yeah. Okay. So you know when it falls asleep, like it's like tingly and it's like hard to move. Okay. Have you ever had the experience where it falls completely asleep? Yeah. 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 yeah okay. When it falls, com- when your hand falls completely asleep, what happens? It's like. It's it's like you no, can't no. you can't feel it anymore. It's not. It, 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 you can, uh, touch, it you can touch it with the other hand, and it's weird. Okay. Right? So we're gonna do we're gonna do an experiment. Okay. I'd like everyone to take a hand. And I like them to place it on the table and keep it immobile. Okay? And okay. And I want you to stare at your hand. And I want you, and if there's not an object in your field of vision, then put an object in your field of vision and then do this. I want you to stare at your hand and stare at the object and stare at your hand and stare at the object. And I want you to observe how both of them are not moving. And I want you to also observe that you sense somehow that you are in that thing that's over there and that you could move it at will, but you're not in the object that's right next to it. So I want you to sense there's this thing over there. It's not moving. And I want you to actually sense somehow there's a, some sense of you being in that other place and that you could move that thing, meaning your hand at will, you couldn't move that object. And I want you to do that until it feels a little bit weird. Okay. Okay. When your hand falls fully asleep, what happens? You experience your hand like you experienced that other object. Right? That, that's all that happens, right? I mean, uh, phenomenologically, you're ex- all that happens is you're experiencing this piece of matter, and we experience every other piece of matter. So what... So... Did the thing... Did that extension of yourself in your hand go away? No. Did it disappear? No. no. What did it do? It just became hidden. It became something that you can't experience. And so it is simultaneously true to say that your hand hasn't changed at all. It's still your hand, right? It's still part of you. And it's also entirely true to say that something has phenomenally changed, right? It's fundamentally changed, like that you can no longer relate to your hand as part of you. You experience the hand as that like external object. That's an analogy for what it means that God hides himself from his word. So ha- the word is both within him and not an external to him. And so there's kind of two truths of it simultaneously. This is very hard to understand, but again, this is mysticism. So, you know, you have to ponder this stuff for a while. Okay. Now. What would happen if God would reveal himself to the word? Would it act differently? Well, the, then, 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 then there would be no, then the word would have no sense of being outside of God anymore. What? We could not. You're, you're, you, you are getting to something later on, chapter 36 in Tanya. We're not there yet. Okay. Fine. Okay. Now. Let's think about this for a second. Are there things you can do with your hand when your hand is fully asleep that you could not do with your hand when you are awake, when it's, yeah. when it's awake? What would be something you could do with your hand? Like pinch it. Yeah. Like... Right. I mean, in fact, don't we, 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 we actually pay people or actually ask them, we are insurance companies, to pay people to do that to our bodies 
so that we don't feel all sorts of, you know, things, right? Have you been to the dentist? Yes. Okay. Um, so I had a root canal. Um, and by the time I finally got to the doctor, the dentist, it was very, very, very infected. And um, so they gave me all the like, Novocaine shots. Um, but they had to stop midway through because they reached the maximum dosage. And because, and here's the thing is, the, the, because the medicine only goes, it has to go through a living flesh. And when you have an infection, what happens to the flesh? Right, so the part where, so I still had like live nerve endings surrounded by rotted flesh. And so the Novocaine wasn't working. So I said, well, we first have to like kill all the bacteria and clean it out before we can then actually continue. So you're gonna have to come back in two weeks. Okay, right. So we like there's like you can you can you can expose yourself and 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 undergo things when you can't feel yourself within your body that you could never do when you feel yourself within your body. I mean, the ultimate example of that is surgery, right? When your whole consciousness just leaves your body, right? Okay. Okay. So, well, what it's saying is. God's word can do all sorts of stuff when it doesn't feel like it's within God that it could never do when it feels like it is. Okay, what can it do? What did the sentence say? What can it do? Well, that's the... No, the contractions are how God hides himself from the word. What does it say? That many diverse creatures be created from them. So what could God's word not do if it was within God? It doesn't say create. Diverse. Let's think about that. Why could God's word not create diverse creations within God? But create diverse creations when it senses that it's without outside of God. How? Uh, Why? There's no diversity within God. Right? God precludes diversity. Because let's think about this. What is diversity? Difference. Diversity is difference. Okay. Diversity is difference. Okay. Um, I want to be a little bit more precise. If there's, if there's, if, would we say, would we say that a single person is diverse? I don't think we tend, we don't tend to think that way, right? Why not? I mean, aren't there many different parts of a person? Right. It's when there's differences and those differences and those differences are separated from each other. Okay. Like I might say you have a like I might I might think there's a diversity of people, right? Because it's not the people are all distinct from each other and they're all different from each other. I have two people who think differently, right? So that means I have a bunch of different entities, right? And each entity differs in some way from the other entities and now I have diversity. Well, okay, but if if the words of God are within God, then they're only revealing the truth of God, which is God is alone. Then there's only one entity there, which is God. So whatever notion of 
of manyness. It's not what we would call, it's not what we would call different entities, different beings, right? In other words, if you think of like, for instance, like a rainbow, right? The light that comes off of the sun, right? It maybe has different wavelengths, but they're all coexisting as one. And we don't really think of that as diversity. When do we think of it as diversity? Right, when it passes through some kind of prism and each wavelength goes its separate way, then we call it diversity, right? Okay, so if everything is subsumed into the being of God and all there is is God's being, whatever notion of differenceness and variability all ends up getting turned into this kind of transcendent oneness and I don't really know what that looks like. But the idea that like, I'm a man and you're a woman, that's a dog and this is a cat, that's an angel, that's a rock, right? Where distinct attributes are being attributed to distinct entities, right? And we have a diversity of different kinds of things. There needs to be space for that. It can't all be subsumed within God's absolute being. So the words in order to create different types of beings would have to be beyond God. So where did God go? What's the answer to that? What is the answer to that? Where did God go? He, himself. he didn't go anywhere. He just hid himself so that the word doesn't real the word of God doesn't realize that God's still here. Okay, now. I'm going to go back to my hand again. Yeah. Um, the word of God then forgets that God is there. Wait, 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 not exactly. Wait, that, wait, 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 wait. No, no, we're not. We're just dealing with the word of God. Okay. okay. Let's go back to your hand. Um, if your hand was really cut off from your life force, what would happen to your hand? If your it would start to it would start to decay. That, that, that's what would happen. It would decay. If your hand falls asleep, is it beginning to decay? No. No. So even though, right? So it, it so even though like that 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 extension of yourself into your hand has gone hidden. It's still there, and it's not just there. It's having an effect. So it's having an effect, but it's not really being felt. How many creators are there? One. One. So is God's word create the world or does God create the world? So if, if the word of God felt like it was somehow beyond God or outside of God or disconnected from God in some way, could it create anything? No, because it's only a conduit for God's creative power, right? So how does the word of God experience it? That it's really outside of God and separate from God? Or it's outside in some sense so that there's kind of space to create many different kinds of things, diverse creations, but it's in some sense still deeply attached to God because it's a channel for God's creative power, right? You, you would have to say something like that. Okay? We don't think that God created an entity that then that entity goes and creates the world. That's idolatry. <laughs> okay. Now, how, how powerful are these concealments? Indeed, so great and powerful are the contractions and concealments of the countenance that even unclean things, klipot and sitra can come into being and be created receiving their life and existence from the divine word and breath of his mouth, blessed be he, in concealment of his countenance and by virtue of their downgradations. How much 
do, this, do the words of God feel like they have left God? So much so that not only could they create diverse creations, they can even create things which are the things that are evil, devoid of God, go against God. So, so if we go back to what I started before the beginning of this chapter, the evil in the world is not a matter of our perception. The evil in the world is being created by the word of God. And it is able to do that because the word of God feels like it is to some very large degree outside of God, beyond God, in some sense, not entirely, because it still can create. And that's due to God concealing himself from the word. It is like he's playing hide and seek. The Maggid of Mizrich. Um, if I remember getting this right, the Maggid of Mizrich um, one time, I don't remember if it was him and his father or him and his son, so I'm, get, I'm getting this confused because I didn't prepare to say this, but you mentioned it. Um, um, so whichever one's the son was, was crying and uh, the father says, why are you crying? He says, we're playing hide and seek and, and my friends didn't come to find me. Mm-hmm. And he says, and so that's also true with God. I'm playing hide and seek and no one's looking for him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, I'm going to give you a very bad Metaphor in the sense that it, it, it loses all of the subtlety and sublimeness, but it's a very good metaphor in that it, it drives home the point very clearly. Let us imagine that the word of God is a pipe. Okay? The pipe can't really do anything on its own, right? With all, all that can happen is that water can pass through the pipe. Okay? Now... If I want to fill this cup of water, it's very simple. I just take the pipe and I open it up and the water comes out and fills the cup, right? Mm-hmm. Except if the water pressure is too high, what happens? Right. In fact, if the water pressure is high enough, the cup will just completely disintegrate, right? Yes? Okay. So, if God wants his word to create creations which are different from him, but his word is conveying his creative power, that word has to get some sense of God, but not an absolute sense of God, right? So this is an idea that, for instance, we take, we take the um, water, right? And we do things to decrease the water pressure before you open up your faucet so it doesn't like, totally destroy things, right? Or we do the same thing with electricity, right? The, the electricity that's being produced by the power plant, if you were just plug something directly into that, it would not work very well. So what the idea is that God is hiding himself without totally cutting himself off from the word so that the word can convey God in some sense, but not in some other sense. It conveys his creative ability, but doesn't convey his aloneness. It conveys his goodness, but doesn't necessarily convey his goodness in the most absolute sense, whatever the case might be. And, And God has kind of volitional control over that, right? He can decide how much he is revealed in the world or not. And therefore, how much the word has a sense of what it can and cannot be creating with God's energy, with God's power. And so even evil is being created by who? By God. Because if you think about it, who's the one that decided to like lower down the water pressure? That's not the pipe. That's whoever controls 
So who's the one that decided that the, that the word of God should only convey the, God's truth up to a certain extent and no more? Because it shouldn't be able to perceive the ultimate truth of God. Who decided that? God. Right. For the purpose of creating evil. So is the evil real to God? But it's all being created where? Within him where there's no place for evil. Okay? So, so somehow it is both exists and doesn't exist to God. Okay? Somehow the multiplicity and diversity of creation both exists and doesn't exist to God. Because what? He is the one that is deciding how revealed he is to the word. But he's never cutting himself off totally from the word because the word is creating with his power, with his energy, right? It's just the conduit for that life force of him. Doesn't that go back to what you were saying about our environment? It's that we have that reality of our environment, but with God, it's not in his environment? Like, it's not in his So, So what you would then have to say is like this. The diversity of creations and the evil, do they exist or do they not exist? In as much as God is here and nothing has left him, they do not exist. In as much as God has hidden himself from the word, they exist. Which of those is more true? Which of those is more true? They're both true. They're both equally true because they're both, they're both, they're both God. Now, here's the problem. My mind has a hard time wrapping its head around that, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, that's a separate discussion, right? But it's not, when God's hiding himself is not pretend, right? It's real. It's just as real as his being there, right? For God, there's no pretending. So he's really here and he's really hidden. So then the evil really isn't here and it really is here. And again, this, this gets into the issue that the dichotomy we have between things existing and non-existing is a product of our limited minds. It's not really true. And that's what's, that, that's what's being implied here. And then the reminder... Of- I just want to go back to the text. That's what he says. He starts off. The Torah employs the language of speech. And the Torah is revealing God's truth. Right? And it is true. Right? He says, he says it's, it's just like speech. The MS in truth. That it goes to this other plane. Right. So the so is there something outside of God? No. Yes. According to this, then yes. Yes and and no. And no. Okay. You, you, one of the things that makes people very 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 frustrated when they learn Chassidus mm-hmm. is they insist on using the same ways of thinking that you're used to th- using when you talk about physical things, which is that you have this, you know, it 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 is this or it isn't that. But if you start to think about many things in life that are really important, you, you realize that they often have kind of paradoxical ways of describing them. Okay, I'm going to give you just one example. Um, what does it mean for um, a person... What, what, does it, what, does it, what does it mean for a person to um, be independent? Think about that for a moment. What, no one can tell you what to do, right? They can do everything themselves, yeah? What? Okay. 
Um, have you ever met a person who does just whatever they feel like doing in the moment yeah. and have, one second, and have all the resources to do that? You've, you've met somebody like that? Yeah. Well, limited, but like, of course, like, like we say yes. Like, yeah, I can, I can, okay, forget it, I'm talking about it. Imagine a person, right, they can do whatever they feel like, <laughs> they, 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 they do whatever they feel like in the moment, and they have the resources to do that. Yeah. Okay. Um, when you do whatever you feel like doing at the moment, when you're tired, what would you do? Sleep. When you're hungry, what would you do? Eat. When you're annoyed, what would you do? Walk okay. Now, the reason why you don't do those things is because you either don't have the ability to do those things all the time or there's consequences that you'd like to avoid, right? Mm-hmm. Now, let's imagine a person, just like you described, yeah, who just does whatever they feel like doing, and there are no, they have the resources and no consequences. Um, does that person sound like a person that we would think of as an independent person or that seems like a person that's like an immature slave to their own animalistic <laughs> desires? There's a weird kind of way is that independence actually involves some degree of self-denial. Think about it. The fact, like, built into the fact that I decide is also the fact that, like, I can't. If all, if, if all freedom is I just do whatever I want, mm-hmm. and, there's no, and, and it doesn't cost me anything, there's no consequences, we don't actually feel independent. We don't actually feel free. We feel like we're slaves to, like, you know, the worst parts of ourselves. Many things that are not physical, that are very real, often have what appear to be contradictory elements. So, for instance, one of the things that like religious people, when they grow up religious, they get very annoyed with is there's all the stuff you can't do. You can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do this, you have to 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 do this. Um, and they resent it because they want to be Free and independent, right. Okay. I'm not blaming them because it's not necessarily their fault. But what are they missing? It's probably the fault of parents and teachers and society. But The idea that if you're actually so free, you're actually... Right. Right. So the idea that you're only really free when you can actually engage in acts of self-denial. <laughs> now, that... Now, if you have a whole, if you have that sense of keeping halacha, right, then, then you, then you have a whole different thing, right? It's, it, it's not, for instance, it's not like I don't, I'm not allowed to turn on the light on Shabbos. It's like, I can live a perfectly meaningful life without having to turn on lights on Shabbos. Like, I don't need the light. I can, it, it, it sure would be more convenient, but I, I don't, like, I don't, I don't need that. I can, I can, you know, if the light, the light's not on, I can... I can deal with that. That's a totally different way of experiencing it. And that's actually how you cultivate more independence. But you see, how, there's a lot of things like that. Love is like this. Um, meaning is like this. Relationships are like this, right? Relationships, it's about being close, right? Mm-hmm. It's about, you know, developing a sense of togetherness, right? It's not an I and a me, it's an us, and right? Okay, so you should totally like, lose your sense of self? Mm-hmm. There should be no boundaries? Oh, okay, so we need to like carefully spell it exactly like how much of everything belongs to each person in a relationship and we clearly negotiate all the boundaries ahead of time. No. <laughs> like a lot of things like that that you have to start to like ponder them, right? To realize that it, it, it doesn't nicely fit into, you know, true or false, yes or no. 
And it's not, a, and, the, and the, the, the thing is not to become, uh, what, what's the word I'm looking for? It's not to become uh, flippant about it or just like, or just like wishy-washy in how you speak about it. It's to actually realize that like the real truth of all these deeper types of things is that you can only fully grasp them when you examine them from contradictory experiences and perspectives. And so it's not really about finding the right words to label them. It's about having a real sense of them, which in Yiddish they would call it their hair which means a, a, a real sense of what we're talking about. And so if you, if, you're, if, you're, if you can get that in a more you know, human level, you can then understand what he's trying to do here. Okay, we're going to stop here. We'll continue tomorrow. We're going to talk about evil and klipa. Because, you know, that's where we're holding, right? Klipa.